Welcome to the original Vegan Business Talk with myself, Shane Jeremy James, where I discuss life-changing business advice with vegan companies who are making a true difference in the world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the next episode. And uh, today we got Nithal. And is the last name Jethala? Jethalal. Jethalal. Yeah. Right? I was close. I was close. I got Not the first name right. <laughs> and everyone's probably watching right now. They're like, well, why why is that first name so hard? They're probably thinking. But if you, his name reads, his name spells N-I-T-A-L. And so it's missing the H. So it, it doesn't sound as it reads at all. <laughs> yeah. Sneaky Indian name. Totally. <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, welcome. And, and he represents a few different things. Uh, plant-based data, VegTO, and the Veg Food Bank. Well, I'm very excited to talk with you. So let's kind of discuss uh, where you're at now and, and how did you get into everything you're doing today? Yeah. Uh, anyways, first, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And awesome. uh, so the flight path for me was I'm, I'm one of those slow-burning vegans. And um, that's kind of a combination of where I'm at now. Now it's a combination of um, my life experience and then my my research interests. They kind of um, aligned uh, over time. But really, it started with my dad, who's a plant-based physician. We grew up vegetarian. So when I saw him incorporate, some people listening might be familiar uh, with Dean Ornish. He's a bit of an OG now, but uh, a right. doctor in the, in the 90s. Yeah, he when he published his research around heart disease and lifestyle, uh, basically what's the blueprint, what became the blueprint for lifestyle medicine in some ways today, my dad jumped on that. And um, he started incorporating into his practice like immediately. And uh, we, being my siblings and I, would uh, spend time in his office. And so we'd see these transformations taking place when people went animal free. Like Dean Ornish's program is uh, multifaceted. It's not just diet. There's um, stress reduction, uh, moderate exercise. But yeah, the the low fat animal free component, like whole food plant based, it was crazy, Shane. Like the... the the amount of change we saw in small amounts of time with people was mind blowing. So uh, that really planned. And he used to give these talks all over town. He used to write a column for the Toronto star, which he'd make us help type up. So it kind of percolated and, and um, integrated right. itself into our background thinking. And even though we were guiltily still consuming dairy a bit, we knew better. But so the health angle yeah. really, really played a big role seeing the amount that healthcare costs us. Heart disease in particular has been the top killer for decades. It hasn't really changed uh, Sometimes mixes with can or cancer takes over in certain areas, but it's killing fifty thousand people a day. And bypasses cost tons in your country, in the U.S. It's insane. So that's really where it started for me is um, starting to see how if we change systems and move them more animal free, you can save a ton of money. And then you fast forward down the road. I did some trade policy um, in university, which really exposed me to agricultural subsidies and protectionism. Then I worked in agricultural policy uh, in Ottawa here for the department. Yeah, basically our version of um, the department of agriculture and you start to connect these dots and realize that really if we it's not just about going vegan for ethics like it really is a swiss army policy knife solution and so fast forward to i actually was doing a phd in this but i left i withdrew from the program and i was really disenchanted like there wasn't much room for appetite for people to look at plant-based this is going back 15 years so it was a bit of ahead of uh, where we're at now today where it's much more palatable for the general public but I just did my own thing, really. Um, I played poker semi-professionally for a while. And when the food guide here changed and went largely plant-based in Canada, 
which is being used around the world as a model example of what happens when you keep like industry and special interests out. Suddenly dairy and meat aren't so heavily featured, at all, if at all. That's when I got back into the research game and the nonprofit game. And so today I work with a few different teams. Um, by day, I do a lot of research uh, for plant-based data. It's kind of okay. a one-stop shop for um, high-level research, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of peer-reviewed research and journal articles, some summaries. Uh, okay. It was co-founded by uh, Nicholas Carter and Tushar Mehta, Dr. Tushar Mehta. So uh, Nick covers the environment section, uh, Tushar is zoonotics and health, and I cover economics and policy. And um, mm -hmm. then in, on the side, well, I say on the side, but um, equally active on the nonprofit side is uh, VegTO, formerly the Toronto Vegetarian Association which is, um, I believe it's Canada's oldest vegan organization. And uh, we right. basically provide resources and support uh, for looking to inspire people and support people uh, who want to have more greener, uh, greener, more compassionate, healthier lifestyles. And finally, the Veg Food Bank, uh, which is a vegan food bank in Toronto, which is uh, designed, which was uh, co-founded by Matt Noble and Kim Carroll, who are two dear friends who pulled me into their kind of community. And really that that activity has made me appreciate the connection between food insecurity, uh, income, and accessibility. And so 60% mm -hmm. of the produce we supply there, 60% of the food is, is fresh produce. And it's really um, the only vegan mm -hmm. food bank that I actually even know of, not just in Toronto, but in general. So I'm on the board there. I'm on the board at VegTO where we're doing a lot of um, different work, but all in the same big vegan space. Yeah. Very interesting. How does that um, vegan food bank uh, work out? And by the way, I'm from Vancouver. And, and right so, on. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so I, I mean, I've ran, I've sat on the board of a lot of food banks in Vancouver and ran a lot of food banks. Um, and um, how does that? How does that? How does it do? Is there a oh, big I mean, need for it? Does it? Does it do well? Yeah, it does. I mean, it was. Uh, established in 2015, Vol right. volunteers are a huge component of this. Um, it's yeah. pretty much exclusively volunteer-led. Matt only became um, a paid executive director like seven years after doing the work off the side right. of his desk. And yeah, there's um, a few hundred people who are regular clients. And um, we're open to anybody who comes in. Like, you don't have to be vegan when you come yeah. in, but you have to be... Um, willing to transition or open a transition or in or transitioning so there's a team there there's an, we have a nutritionist uh dushar actually from plant based he's one of the physicians that um is on the consultation roster and so when people come in they're like you know they're seen they're talked spoken to it's not like you just give it the food you you actually sit down with them talk to them the importance of food um a lot of people still don't appreciate that plant-based diets are actually cheaper uh, when you come down mm -hmm. to the staples so that's that's a bit of a message and it's it's a really nice environment we there's somebody who plays music usually marco upstairs there's a chef um rotates but often um amy Symington is this lovely chef who's a cookbook and tons of great work and is a professor and studying doing a phd in nutritional science who does meals so people right. come in they have a they have a soup or a lot of like a, a small meal uh a dish and then they're they go through the food bank and and get their their groceries it's once a month and it's it's just been amazing since matt's been full-time executive director it's the the possibilities have expanded massively now so it's not only doing well but matt started a farm at a sanctuary wishing well sanctuary just outside town a quarter acre 
is growing a ton of food. We had like 30 volunteers up there to plant. So the possibilities are now ex expanding. Um, it's going to, I think it's, it's doing well and it's going to do even better as Matt continues along the path. That's really cool. I like, I like that idea. Is it, um, so is it done like a lot, all, all you know, donors money-wise, like you do money raises and then do you go buy vegan food or are you partnering with vegan companies or how does that all work to raise the, the, the food? It's a bit of both. Um, Matt right. has established some relationships. So like so often you'll see like Vega products um, there and some vegan right. companies like that, but also donor. Um, yeah, there's um, some large donors. There's also, we didn't do it this year, but we'll do like a peer-to-peer -peer fundraiser for... Um, raising money so uh we all go 30 hours without eating the fast for hunger to raise money as well ourselves and um because it's largely volunteer led the money goes a long way um it all goes directly basically towards buying the food and running the food bank it's it's run out of young street mission too we don't the costs are very low basically right so it's yeah, so when you so yeah so being run out of the young street mission so is that like so you don't operate full-time? Is it you pick a day and then everybody comes or is it operated full-time? No, it's it's that's correct. It's the last Saturday of every month, typically, that, that is okay. there. The pandemic really threw a wrench into things for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many people do, do you usually get through the doors? That's a great question. Um, I'd have to double check. So I don't have that number offhand, but I know you'll see a few hundred on a, like the busiest days. Uh, it's it's right. typically from about noon till four it runs. And right. some people will stream and then, and we have a, we have a whole system when you come, you take a number, you, you go get your food and chill out and then you come down when you're called. Right. That's awesome. We have a thing called compassion kingdom. And I, I've traveled around doing uh, all around North America, doing compassion acts for all kinds of uh, people and things. And um we help with our homeless a lot here in Vancouver and we partner with like Blue Mountain made all the tofu sandwiches for us last time and tofu hot dogs for last time. And so like we partner with quite a few of the companies around here, vegan companies will let us use their kitchens and give us stuff and do all kinds of stuff and help us out. So, yeah. So, I, so I love that idea of what you guys are doing. Thanks. Yeah. That sounds great over there too. That's awesome. There really is no shortage of people willing to mm -hmm. contribute in some way once they discover it. I found. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 you know it's so true on that. So, tell us a little bit about uh, the other things uh, that you're involved in. Yeah, sure. Um, one last note on the food banks, by the way. Matt's got yeah. an exciting new initiative: um, put food banks out of business, because that's the other thing okay. that the, the broader picture, and I think we'll this might be a nice segue is you should we shouldn't need food banks. No, hundred percent. Right? No, hundred so, percent. I I completely agree. It's ridiculous. You know that it should it should never ever be here ever. It's it's absolutely crazy. So it's it's easy to lose sight of. We all get busy. We have day you know things going on in our daily lives, and we forget right. that people are really struggling with food insecurity, especially the pandemic. A lot more people entered into extreme food insecurity and hunger, and. Um, the idea of this getting out there that ties it a little bit more into policy, which I'm happy to chat about now. I, so I know your podcast is a lot uh, focuses on, uh, generally on for-profit stuff. I've noticed that the trend being entrepreneurship and, and leadership, if I have it correct. So does, does that sound fair? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, we go, we go a bit of both. I mean, I don't mind going and, you know, policy is nice to talk about and stuff, but you know, even about the, the food bank, you know, what we're talking about, it, it, it ties right in to, 
you know, business, because it is a business. And, and a lot of people know that. Uh, I, I mean, one of the things that I've been a master at from starting business from a young age is growing communities and helping support communities that built my brands. And people don't understand that, that when you do good and you're helping your brands build at a different level, if you're strategic about it, right? You know what I mean, yeah. right? But, but I'm a firm believer that when you do good, you know, there is nothing wrong to map it back to business strategy because I think sometimes those are the ones that should really win because you're taking your time. Like people don't understand how much time it takes us to put on all this stuff that we do where if we weren't doing it, we could just be focused on generating more money, right? <laughs> but yep. in the end, that community, it goes a long way and brand and brand builds and brand is the most important thing and the hardest thing to do in the market. So yeah, I, I, I you know, I, 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 you know, I love, actually the, the truth is too, is when I learned to run boards at the level I did was when I sat on so many of the food bank boards, you know, and I really learned how to run boards and organize boards and do board meetings and, and motivate boards and see who was interested and who was not, you know, right? And, and so on. So yeah, go in what go in whatever direction you you, you feel like it right now. Sure. Um. So the idea, the reason why I was asking is kind of like the idea of policy entrepreneurship, if you will, like yeah. just to take a step back, like policy, essentially public policy is like a set of laws or guidelines, right? And actions mm -hmm. that are decided upon and taken by governments, uh, Traditionally, or in theory, in order to work in favor of the public, right? So we right. can all dictate certain things like which laws are passed, where the funding goes, uh, what topics concern us. And every level of government sets policy. I know policy, what I've noticed um, since getting into this law is that can be a bit of um, a switch right away. People hear policy and they kind of tune out. Like that's something, you know, it's it can strike people as more academic or, I don't know, erudite. But really, yourself, myself, anybody who's vegan immediately in my mind like has been basically voting for a policy change we all i don't i haven't yet to meet a vegan who doesn't want to see a more vegan world yeah and so why this is important this conversation we're having today is that every level of government sets policy and we really do need to um mobilize and organize and, and take action where we can to be able to balance the scales and and maximize our uh the opportunity that we can that's available for us to capture it's it's shaped over many years and many institutions and stakeholders are involved, right? Including the general public. So there's public consultations sometimes. And in Canada, we have every federal division has a strategic policy branch, which kind of coordinates policy for that group. So anyways, in theory, it's, it's there to influence, policy is there to influence how important decisions are made and should be formed as a response to specific interest, uh, interest uh, issues of interest. But because of how our political systems work, it's kind of been hijacked by large stakeholders or special interest groups, right? So like large failings that come to mind off the top of my head are taxation or gun reform in the US, things right. like that. Uh, it's maddening, right? When you see change that should be completely doable and in the interest of the public uh, not happen. So we can do stuff about this. Most people don't appreciate the power that we have in organization. Like usually change is incremental, like legalizing marijuana or um, banning just getting just gestation crates banned. But the last 20 years in most industrialized um, sectors, there's been like a heavy concentration in times of people are employed through large corporations. So like if there's a big systemic failure, there's we're going to need wide scale change. And we haven't right. really proven very good at that. 
Like, look at how slowly climate policy is moving, for example, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even I was working on Industry Canada when the auto sector crash happened, um, which should have led to massive restructuring. But instead of huge change, we hear like too big to feel, uh, too big to fail. And suddenly you see a form of co corporate socialism. So just to, just to put this in context for why it's important, um, and like globally, it gets worse, by the way. You know, as a globalized world, as we become, um, governments still very much think from a lens of national self-interest, which is rational. Like, you know, it's its own citizens that keep them in power, but most global institutions don't have any teeth and rely on collective cooperation. That's why like international criminal or trade laws so weak and why it's been so tough to see global standards set on things that we all care about, I think, as vegans on around like factory farming and antibiotics use um, right. subsidies. So the point here is that I'm trying to make is we all need to advocate for policy change where we can. Mm -hmm. Governments will pay attention to louder influential constituencies. And every vegan I know, like I said, wants to see a more vegan world. So I like to say, I forget where I get this from, got this from. I definitely am boosting it from somebody. But if you're against animal abuse and cruelty, which is nearly everybody out there, you're already 80 or 90% vegan. So yeah. in, the, in the vegan community, there's a lot of opportunity for us, even though we're a small number as a percentage of the population. I don't have to tell you or most people listening, the interest is massive out there. The growth rates are rising, right? There's a ton of potential allies in people's, anybody listening that in your close circles or communities that you can activate in an area where there's common ground, even if they're not, you know, willing to become vegan. In my head, I think most people I know are like, you know, vegan adjacent and want to be there, but like better access to fruits and vegetables. Like who's against that? Or yeah. getting carcinogenic products like cigarettes or hot dogs and bacon. People don't quite appreciate the level to which those are carcinogenic, but getting those out of public places. So organizing where we can, engaging in calls to action, really to frame our discussion, like getting people to think about where they can maximize their influence for change is really right. the common thread here for a lot of the different things that, um, that I'm up to. And so like, just look at what, like some of these, it doesn't need to be big, by the way. Some of these largest changes that uh, we can see takes place through grassroots action or in, even individual action. Like look at what Malala or Greta Thunberg have done as teenagers, right? In terms of sparking and leading global action. So broadly, just that said, anyway, if, you, if you're just thinking, once, once people go vegan, I see a certain path, right? Like you kind of want to tell everybody about it, like for people right. who go vegan overnight, especially. So in that moment, like who actually is the best use of your time? Like we all turn to our family and friends and often there's tension there, right? The way yeah. we choose to eat really influences how others, like there's a mirror being held up sometimes. So that might not always be the best use of uh, time or the optimal you know, strategy for you. There's, right. there's some good stuff out there now, uh, good examples of like Fortune 500 CEOs whose teenage daughters are influencing them tremendously. Right. Uh, the WeWork example, I know WeWork might not be the best company to use as a model example these days, but there is that Netflix, I think it was on Netflix or Apple TV had a series on that, right? With Jerry Leto and yeah. they cover that where his wife just basically demands that he make the company vegan. Yeah. Yeah. And, I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you see like overnight, he he kind of, and I don't know how true the story it is that he's like, fine, just do it. But that's a good example where yeah. um, targeting the right people. So on collective organization. Um, so for starting with plant-based data, maybe um, there is, we recently hosted uh, Connie Spence from the vegan, uh, sorry, Agricultural Fairness Alliance. They're a group in the US yes. and Connie's really focused on actual lobbying. Like she, she is aware people are, in, we're not in the room, we're not trying to get change made. 
industry or a status quo is gonna is gonna win out. And I saw this at Ag Canada too. We'd have people sometimes protesting and ag subsidies, right? And animal ag subsidies. But when you need to make a decision as a policymaker and you don't have a specific call to action or you know suggestion mm -hmm. or a big constituency who wants something, you're just gonna stick with the status quo and your stakeholders, right? Who are right. paying people to go in there. So Connie's got something that she's developed called the Vegan Voter Hub where people in the US, I don't know how many people in the US might be listening, but everybody knows somebody in the States. Uh, you just sign up and that constituency can grow. And she's using that. She's going to Congress, taking meetings. The larger that constituency can grow, the larger the voice and the harder it is to ignore her. And in Canada, we have, I don't know if you're familiar with Nation Rising. They're a nonprofit. They're currently rebranding, I think. So they might potentially be changing their name, but basically they're a group focused on responsible national food and agricultural policy. And they, okay. they too, I think, want to mobilize people and speak to broad constituencies. So like there's all sorts of areas that we all want to see change. And so some of the research that I um, engage in, as Tushar and Nick do as well, covers topics around some right. of these change. And um, like production subsidies and insurance or regulation is another example of right. different areas. But that's all national. So like we need to change food systems badly, drastically. Yeah. National policy moves really slowly. Um, we need land use is probably the most under discussed and urgent area for, uh, in terms of the climate or the environment discussion. And, um, I really recommend, actually I have it here. Uh, George Mambio has this book out, Regenesis. This is honestly like in terms of this, I'm not going to make any, I, I think the status quo is to make a reference to the Bible, but it's got a ton of knowledge around how do we get to a world where we get away from the status quo of what we have now where animal right. ag is destroying the planet, you know, like explain, explain a little bit, then uh, go a little bit deeper in the part about land use uh, and that area. Yeah, sure. It's, I mean, it's the most important area um, that's being like kind of overlooked tacitly, but take, I mean, so overall uh, sheep is a good example. Like if you look at um, I think most people recognize beef being absolutely terrible for environmental reasons but um, there are other ruminant meats as well, like uh, sheep and lamb, et cetera. So in the UK, I believe, they take up, I think humans make up 7% of the population, or take 7% of land and, and uh, sheep, it's just over 50%, I believe. This is all covered in uh, Mamio's book. But Great. meanwhile, that produces, that they supply 1% of all the animal, of all the protein. And so there's two things going on one is extremely inefficient and like there's many um problems with animal ag on the land itself right you're seeing right. the number one source of deforestation ocean acidification air pollution is entering the picture it is absolutely terrible um the best conversion from animal from feed to animal is uh still much worse like which is chicken i believe is much worse than and the worst plant you know if you take soy tofu etc just requires much less land, much less um, input. But the second right. part of the equation here is the opportunity cost. And this is where, back to this message of what we can all do when you go vegan or you're interested is kind of getting to just know a little bit. Like, you know, I'm not telling everybody you have to go home and do homework, but there is a huge opportunity cost to the way we use land currently, where we use it for animals, raising animals, um, you know, deforesting like crazy. And that yeah. is re rewilding the land. And okay. Nick Carter at Plant Based Data does a ton of research on this, and it's emphatic that 
the best use of the land is to rewild it. So one argument you'll hear more and more in the years to come is uh, regenerative animal agriculture and, and holistic grazing. These are the arguments put forth. Like you'll hear slogans from industry, especially um, it's not the cow, it's the how that they can be a part of this global environmental solution. So it's, it's quite maddening. If you look at where a lot of the conversations are these days in food systems discussions, it's like, how do we make cows burp or fart less and like, you know, feeding them seaweed, et cetera, tech, tech, tech around that. And they're not discussing what could we be doing with the land otherwise. And the, so the opportunity cost, if you rewild the land and you leave it to be, it has tremendous um, benefits across the board. Like there's, there's so many stats we could get into that I'll avoid to keep it high level. But um, those are, that's the, probably the most under discussed and the most scientifically conclusive area in my mind around the land used um around the land used for what we're doing uh, what we're doing for our food systems it right. is it is it is like a no-brainer so take new zealand if we if everybody ate by the new zealand diet which is you know got a ton of these sheep um we require another planet earth just as almost the size of earth to sustain ourselves and right. that's that's where you think that's where the grazing conversation kind of comes in like grazing um, might be sure better source of meat as it's you know factory farming is hard to be worse it's hard to be worse than that but yeah. it requires two and a half times the amount of land those animals are live longer lives and um, have more methane uh, there's more methane in that system so what could we be doing if we weren't even shifting to that but towards plant-based you know on the other side of the new zealand diet for every for all example if we had a plant-based diet, we'd reduce the amount of um, arable land we need for agriculture by seventy-five percent, which wow. is which is mind-blowing. And we'd be able to restore something like twenty percent of arable land to um, rewilding, and right. which brings the which brings the most benefits. It's truly mind-blowing when you. I don't know much about farming and agriculture. I, I realized once I started reading this book, Regenesis, but it's mind-blowing what happens when you let the land uh, return more to its natural state. What happens with the soil, the environment, um, the carbon capture, et cetera? It's it's absolutely mind blowing. So, I do but think. What do, you, what do you think? What do you think with that? Let's say you have all these people that have, you know, like the farms are are making money. That's their income. So if they say, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna what because they're gonna want to use their land to make some kind of profit. Yeah. So how do you get around that then? Great question. So that is a huge area um, I'm diving into uh, in terms of research, right. because like most people, I think don't still don't appreciate it's somewhat in the ether that most farming, most income farm farmers make is going to the big guys. So yeah. the average farmers are making like like small farmers are making nothing. And uh, most of that income they're already receiving comes through subsidies. The right. question is, so overall, this is an area I'm shocked in policy is not covered more is labor transition. Like, what do you do with people? And so one option that seems to be a no brainer conceptually is you pay them to take care of the land. They, you pay them to become environmental stewards. They don't need to right. go anywhere. They stay there. They know the land better than anybody else there. But it's, you know, you're changing the framework a little bit. Yeah. You're not asking them to produce. There's a there's a report actually done by the World Resources Institute. and um, Sorry, the World Bank and the IFPRI, the International Food and Research Policy, 
Institute right. that um, found recently in January, they released this report, only 35 cents of subsidy dollars actually go towards farmers directly too. So it's an extremely wow. inefficient system. Like yeah. the other part is uh, figuring out what, what could be done with the labor. So one, there's these cash for trash programs out there that multiple countries have, um, Indonesia, et cetera, like a lot of them um, exist. And basically you're paying fisher, fishermen, fishers uh, to go out and clean up the ocean rather than, you know, consume from it. And right. I'm not familiar enough yet with stats are really um, good models out yeah. there, but, but there's actually out in your area and UBC has a professor who's like a world renowned expert on oceans and fisheries. And in 2008, Shane, so it's been a while, he found that you could take all fishing subsidies. Um, it's like 35 billion a year for fishing. And they're like the most egregious example uh, in my mind of, where it's like such wasteful money we're paying we're literally paying fuel subsidies us all of us taxpayers to let fishers go further into the water to kind of take well to deplete the ocean to ble like to wow. unsustainably yeah. fish we could use that money they found um, his name is dr rashid sumela sumela found that we could actually retrain the entire sector for less than the money that we're subsidizing for this unsustainable practice but the question, Jeez. as you mentioned, is what do you do? Like, mm -hmm. it gets really tricky in countries like Canada or where you have coastal communities, right? Out east where it's a fishing community entirely. Yeah. Um, how do you start changing that is a conversation that needs to get a little bit louder. And, and hopefully this year, both through plant-based data and um, other collaboration, collaborative research, we'll get a little bit more developed in terms of proposing alternative programs um, uh, to that end. But, th but there are models that currently exist that are ramping up. So right. Mercy for Animals, or actually my favorite one is Rancher Advocacy Program. It's okay, this yeah. woman, uh, do you know, have you heard of them? No, I haven't. Okay, so rap, rap for short, but it's this woman, right. Renee King. Um, she's a fourth generation cattle rancher in the US. She's got like the, the yee-haw vibe and the accent and everything. She went vegan almost overnight. They converted their ranch into a sanctuary. And then she got vocal and she, she really- What's, their, what's their company name? What's their uh, name? Her brand is Rowdy Girl Sanctuary, but oh like, yeah, 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 I know them. There, she's going to be on my podcast. One of my, one of actually my, um, one of the one of my vegan companies that was on here and actually is a client of ours is her partner. Oh no way! Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Wow. She's awesome. Yeah. So there are a few people like Renee. She's doing great work um, transitioning farmers. Cause that's the question that some of them, many of these farmers don't want to be in this practice chain. It happens right. all the time. Like Leah Garces's book, um, Leah Garces, for those who don't know, is currently the president of MFA. She wrote a great book called Grilled and it's all about the chicken industry, right? They're giving in the U S at least they give young people looking to get, who are looking to get into some kind of agricultural work, a large amount of money to get a ton of land, and you're essentially renting the animals from the company like Purdue or Tyson. And then given the system, people like some of them, people will struggle to keep up. Like you'll have, you're responsible for the amount of chickens that die, et cetera, under your care. And whatever happens, like it's business, right? And it's not a great business model. People fall behind. Right. And as soon as they fall behind they're they're between a rock and a hard place. You're 21 years old with like a 250 K mortgage. You can't get out. Like, what do you do? Yeah. yeah. So Renee's got a, like the, the programs that are out there right now, Renee's program, MFA has one. Um, there's some others also abroad, but exotic mushrooms are a good example of um, an area of focus. So that's where Renee actually ate at her latest summit. They had a, um, a family there that's 
gone and converted a portion of their uh, old chicken farm, the structure, like these huge structures to just only grow mushrooms where you can, you know, it's, you can grow mushrooms pretty much anywhere and you can charge a lot more. Uh, they're making nothing like the, the medium income of a chicken farm in the States is like 17 grand a year or something. It's absolutely terrible. So those models are in development, but the, the, the broad answer to your question doesn't really uh, exist yet. Like, what do you actually do? This is where policy really needs to develop. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, policy is the key, you know, to to change, you know, as much as people think it's a kind of a hard subject, you know, or a boring subject to talk about. But even in business, you know, I tell people successful businesses are built around policy, right? And that's why most small businesses go out of business because their structure is there's no policy in any of their business. It's never been there. So eventually they collapse. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm so on board with that. And, you know, I mean, the, the conversation we're talking about right now is so big, but so many places that, um, you know, it has to go. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it was interesting, the, the indigenous out just off of, uh, off uh, the coast here, um, they partnered with, uh, with my friend Desiree, and, and they grow seaweed farms. Okay. And so, so they were doing fishing before, and now, because they have the more of the rights to the part of that, that ocean, or I forget the exact deal, but yeah, they partner with them. And so they grow seaweed now, and don't do as much fishing. Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah. I need to get more information. I need to hear more about that offline. That's that's exactly the kind of stuff. So right now, hopefully, like I'm, I'm working with one other um, collaborator, just a, basically a volunteer researcher like myself in many ways. And um, she has a good sense of the uh, seal hunt and stuff here from the 80s and 90s. But that brought with yeah. her um, a good understanding of the fishing industry. But it's it's a tough conversation, just like farms in general on land, like their communities as well, the ones that are smaller, more mid-sized and, and their community in their communities being the first to change, um, first adopter is really tough. Plus just the way it's set up right now, Shane, like the, the deck is stacked against them. Like when I first went vegan, I really thought animal farmers were kind of my, my nemesis or, you know, there's sides here. But as you look at the system more, you see that a lot of people are getting defensive out of what must be like a no-win situation like where do you even how do you even get out and um like yeah. leah's book and research wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a whistleblower on the inside but but yeah like one thing the reason why policy is important even though some people might feel bought bored by is it's gonna happen whether you like it or not so mm -hmm. like step is let's broad zoom out for a minute beyond food and just look at the states the conservative movement in there and like what happened around abortion recently although thankfully that might blow up in their face uh, a little more but right, right. that was the result you know the same sex uh, marriage thing was in their teeth for a long time and they they fought it tooth and nail and abortion has never gone away for them as an issue and there were actual videos and you know documented uh, like people writing that after three decades of us pushing for this policy change like we finally got it so when people don't show up you know it's the same argument for why it's important to vote but this actually has mm -hmm. much more tangible results when you stay 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 away from all this yeah. you don't you don't have your voice heard and and things that happen that you don't like um, are going to happen so do you actually think we're making good progress do you think we're actually going to be able to look back 25 years from today and there's been a big change in what we're talking about that's a great question um i my fundamental answer is yes 
pretty much because of a need. We don't have a choice on the path mm -hmm. we're on. Um, I can't think of a future where we're able to have a conversation like this, you know, and the world isn't burning without massive change. Uh, so yes, I do. But how we get there still is, this is why it's important, I think, um, these three areas of policy, like there's the national level, and then you, you get your provinces or states and municipal, change needs to happen a lot faster there. Um, just in general, we're looking at a rising meat pop, uh, consumption, even though the interest, people are reducing their, you know, uh, pleasantly so, there is a large reduction in meat consumption in many level one, level two areas. Those are, you know, terms used now, classifications for developed areas, if you will. Toronto, we just ran a poll through VegTO that found even though 85% of people are consuming animal products here daily, it's almost two thirds, like 64% of the city want to eat less meat. So the interest is rarely there um, in many of our societies, like in, in uh, quote unquote developed, but overall meat consumption is still going up in the world. And yeah, we have a system now. It's, it's absolutely insane. Like it's just not resilient, you know, like just four plants, wheat, rice, maize, soybean account for 60% of the calories that are being grown by farmers. And like when you look at who's producing this stuff, four countries, US, Argentina, Brazil, France, make 76% of the corn that's exported to other countries. And 40% um, of the world's nations rely on food from other nations. Like there's, it's very, there's a lack of resiliency. And right. like take that alone, forget plants versus animals for a moment. That has to change um, for things in the 25 year span to look a bit different. But right. but I do think I do think we are getting there. Like on the plant-based data and economic side, we are seeing cost curves drop for things for food tech. That's really important. The most important of which is uh, precision fermentation. So there was a great report in 2019 done by a think tank called Rethink X on food and agriculture that forecasted the end of U.S. dairy um, and to some extent livestock by 2035 just based wow. on the impact of food tech alone, um, because that's what comes, what, that's what it comes down to is once things are at parity, then like, and the costs are low enough so that the prices are competitive, because still like plant-based meal alternatives, the retail um, prices are 50 to 300% higher on average. Yeah, so, that's the, that's the big problem. That's a big problem. Yeah, but they're coming down. Like Impossible yeah. and Beyond Beef got into some kind of price slashing war almost last year. And um, there was a good paper. Well, um, you know what I seen? You know what I just seen? And I was in Costco the other day and there was, they had their own version, right? Costco version of oh, Kirkland, like a Kirkland type of plant-based burger, a spinoff of Impossible and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And it was only a buck a burger. It was $16 for 16 of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was that on sale? So No, no. It was just, uh, so I bought it and tried it and it was similar to possible and it was similar to you know the the beyond the types type stuff so you know i seen that you know of course they're making a you know they're making a big play uh you know there which is a smart play for them because you know they can produce such mass you know if they get that right that you know they, they will pick up that bit because i mean i went to normally you know bought it if it was the same cost if i would have looked at it i'm thinking it was the same cost as beyond would I have bought that? Pro no, probably not. But since I was like, oh, you know what I mean? That's only a buck a burger. You know what I mean? So let's give it a shot, right? Absolutely. That the price is the biggest factor. I mean, we talked about accessibility, price, taste, convenience, accessibility. Um, those are what 
drive food purchases and behavior. And there's a, actually a good research done last year, I believe, um, this guy, uh, Jason Lask, who's, I think he's in Saskatchewan, but uh, the research showed for every 1% drop in the price of um, plant-based meal alternatives, PBMA has increased the market share by 3%. So mm. price really does matter. Like plant-based meats are extremely elastic. So uh, like a 1% drop in Impossible Burgers price leads to like uh, people buy, it's like 0.1 something, 1.4 something uh, less store brand beef. Like, so per your point, if we extrapolate that to a 20% decrease um, in price, then you'll see a 3% decline in, in store-bought meat, uh, store brand ground beef, if you will. Uh, like regular meat consumers are willing to pay more currently, but yeah, there's a study done by Kearney, who's a consulting firm. So total meat market today, I think the average for plant-based meat alternatives is like 11 bucks a pound, but at parity, which would be five and a half bucks a pound, you'll see the market share increase. Like it's still only about 1% of the global market share, but you could see it increase about 20%. And mm. it's, it's you know, it's the same way cost curves when you talk about tech, whether it's food or CDs or computers or cell phones, um, they're very high at the start, right? And they have these, uh, either these S curves or they'll, they'll have a just straight declining. Like the first one is really uh, expensive. The first, like, I don't know if you remember 2013, I think is when the first, uh cell be cell made burger was out and it was like 250 grand to produce yeah. that one but i do right. think so on the market side i we're on we're we're definitely heading in the right direction i know plant-based meats and uh, foods have gotten a knock in the in the press over the last year but like people will be knocking the slowdown of plant-based market sales but uh the market's expected to grow at like i think it's 18 percent or so from this year to 2027 which is huge yeah, and consumer behavior is um, changing. I think. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think what you know to piggyback what you said that, you, you know, it's just business in general. You know, like Impossible is actually doing quite well. We're beyond the meat, uh, beyond is is taking a more of a hit, and their their stock is dramatically down. But it's not. If you look at the makings of the business, it's not because it's plant-based it's because it's how it's being run it's because it's where the money is being distributed there's multiple things with inside that business model that are not being executed properly and so yes. you know it's just like you could just it's like any business whether it's a meat business or that business right you know somebody is going to come in and execute it differently and turn it around or or, or run it differently and so it, to me it has never been about you know, the it's losing market share. Uh, to me, it's more about the operations of that tire and business uh, right now. And I mean, that's a whole nother subject. Yeah, that's yeah. about a 10 hour podcast alone on that, right? But I think you're right though. I think, and and people, I, I don't actually even know enough operationally in terms of, I don't do like direct market research much, but when you look at the scale that JBS Tyson have like there's very few big companies in many sectors but in food especially the scale that they have like they can produce in like these big plants a quarter of a million like a quarter of a million whatever beef like patties for burgers and like one two week span or something like that uh yeah. just with like an employee roster like eight to 16 people like that's it beyond an impossible when you go to and sell ag too like they're very intensive capital capital intensive yeah. projects right so that still hasn't been figured out to your point. Like there's been some learning, some, there's going to be some painful growth there, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. But, but I do think the the tech side of things for precision fermentation, 
the future is really bright in terms of making things. We're moving from kind of plant-based to, to animal-free. Like we're seeing the precision fermentation is kind of like you're using fermentation. It's I've heard um, others on your podcast talk. It's like Jenny um, is big on this. Stoyakovich. Um, the idea of plant-based being it's animal free. You're using the exact same molecularly. It's the exact same at the cell base level. It's just as it's been programmed, you know, uh, without using an animal. And that also has a lot of better safe uh, health implications. It's safer. Uh, it's going to be more reliable. You can grow it anywhere. We might actually be on the cusp of seeing fermentation farms show up like the way you see microbreweries and suddenly right. geography doesn't matter as much for what you produce. So I definitely think that's going to drive a huge part of how we get there. But but to, to back to your bigger point, Shane, I just don't see a future like that without massive household change either. Like the idea mm -hmm. that we need to have um, alternatives is un undisputed. I don't think fast food's going anywhere, for example, et cetera. But like household consumer behavior drives like 72% of global emissions. You know, animal-based foods have at least double the the carbon footprint alone. And and the thing that people don't appreciate a lot is that dietary changes can lead to a huge reduction, like 34 to 70%, depending where you look at it uh, in GHG emissions. So Sushar talks about this a lot um, through plant-based data and in his own talks, uh, just a, a culture of less consumption, I think will be a part of that future. If you know we make it out of this in one piece together, the topic of consumption will have been addressed. And the mm -hmm. fact that we overconsume as a society. So in terms of systems change, degrowth is a really big and popular conversation um, area of focus that looks at all sorts of stuff, right? like the role of currency and um, taxation, things like that. But, but yeah, I think households, one way or the other, I think we got to move there. Um, while keeping whole plant-based foods in the conversation. I think that's probably where we have the biggest Achilles heel as a movement in this um, wave of change is yeah. the rise of vegan junk food, the rise of, you know, Impossible and Beyond. I, I totally support them, but we're going to lose the clarity we have around the health data, for example, if, if it just stays focused on that. Like one of my, probably the biggest reason why I got into all this, selfishly even, is that I just want cheaper fruits and vegetables. Like I want that for everybody, but also myself. Like I would love to yeah. see a juice bar at every corner, the way we see convenience stores, things like that. Yeah. So, um, but on the municipal level, to get there, it's really exciting. There's some stuff mm -hmm. going on now. Anybody listening who wants to actually like, so where do I get involved? What do I do? Um, there's a program. I'm not sure. Have you heard of this program, Greener by Default? No. Okay, it's it's. I think it's something that people are going to be more accustomed to hearing uh, in the years to come. Greener by default is essentially. Uh, it used to be called Default Veg, but okay. essentially it incorporates a lot of the research and why I got into this game is around nudging. Like you want to just change the choice architecture or framework for people, for everybody out there who's interested in changing. But the, it's it's a lot. People don't think deeply. A lot of people who are in the vegan movement who go vegan overnight. It's kind of like it's hard to process that other people might not, you know, have that same protocol mm -hmm. that we all that yeah. we have to change. But you can make it easier on people, and so Greener by Default does that. They there's three principles: you make it simple, you make it obvious, you make it abundant, and basically you're just shifting menus more plant based. But you're not getting you're not eliminating the option for people to eat meat, dairy, and eggs. You're just putting plants first, and so. Right. What that looks like is um, having them up front on the menu or having meat and meat, dairy, and animal products as an opt-in. 
So this simple change, Shane, like this program, this it's uh, currently under the Better Foods Foundation, but they're going to be actually branching off and being a sister organization on their own, this one program, Greener by Default. And they have guidelines. So anyway, listening, if you want to see more plant-based options um, in wherever you are, uh, in your city, in your school, in your university, in um, your corporation, you can promote this program and, and ask for these uh, guidelines to be adopted. And the uptake is insane. It's like 40 to 80% um, uptake of people just ex- like saying yes to the, to the plant-based options, just based on how they're presented. And um, I think that's going to be like the, we might not see the wide scale, like top level down food systems change that we all want to see just based on, you know, what we're seeing with climate change, that should be happening a lot more rapidly there. But the good news is that from the ground grassroots level up, we can all promote programs like this and start to move our communities and circles in this direction. And I think that's going to be like, you know, looking 25 years from now, oh yeah, we got there. This will be a key component is like nudging everybody towards it um, and seeing incremental change. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me because often, you know, I say lots on our podcast. I'm a big workout guy every morning, 6 a.m., I carry nice. a lot of muscle. I'm bigger than most guys in the gym and everybody can understand that I don't eat meat. You know, like it's all, they all joke about it. They're like, yeah, like he literally doesn't eat meat. Like it's crazy. And, um, and in a lot of the people around me, you know, they know I operate with a massive amount of energy. I don't get tired. And I said, like, think about it. It's just a no brainer. I don't care what you want to call it. Don't even call it plant-based veganism, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. It's just a no brainer. If you put more fruit and vegetables and whole grains and stuff in you, you're going to have, you're going to be cleaner. You're going to operate better. Like that's, you know, that's 101, you know? So, you know, when I talk like that, many people don't argue with me at that point. You're like, yeah, I mean, whatever you want to call it, but it's just a thing where you're going to live longer. You're going to feel better. You're going to not age as fast. You know, it's just, it's just there, you know? So uh, I get a lot of them on that, that starts to switch over and follow me because of that, you know, really? and then, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Tons, tons, tons. Yeah. It's so interesting. Everybody I talked to, like in your experience too, you sound like, I mean, Brendan Brazier was a huge influence on me and the whole concept, right. That you're cutting out like the delivery system for those nutrients makes the most basic sense. And yeah. a- anecdotally, every single time I have a conversation with somebody like you about this, especially like, you know, energetic uh fit person the other dudes like will follow and be interested and then you zoom out and i guess i guess people online are just more trolly but um there's still this it seems to be this disbelief still in the ether even though game changers came out etc like in our poll we found over half the population still thinks they're they're interested in eating more plant-based but then they still think that animal products are part of a healthier diet do you do you have that experience yeah, yeah, I, uh, lack of education on that, a hundred, yeah, a hundred percent. So, you know, it, it is, it, it it goes like I mean, a good example is being like, man, like I don't understand like how you can be that big and not eat meat, right? So that's a prime example, right? Of thinking like you have to be eating meat and chicken, right, to carry this muscle right? It's a normal bodybuilder diet, right? You eat lots of chicken, you eat lots of rice, you know what I mean? And you, you look, you know, you have this physique that's muscular. Um, Yeah. So, so I under, yeah, a hundred percent get, you know, get, get that. Um, 
but they also, you know, when they do start, they're like, yeah, he does operate, you know, so when they kind of get into my inner circle and even the people close to me, they're like, yeah, he's not, he doesn't teach it. Like he truly lives it. Like you'll see him get up at 4 a.m., work till 11 at night. And like, he just operates different than anybody else. And so they, you know, they, because everybody, you know, most people I know are trying to get more energy. So they're like, okay, okay. Show me how to do it then. If you can help me get more energy, I'm in. Like, that's really a lot of how it starts. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. By the way, you get up at 4 a.m.? Yeah, I get up at 4 a.m. every day. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. It, it's funny. It's it's so true. Like, I, I was in India for yoga training, and that was my benchmark in my head, even if I didn't articulate it, was, like, let's see who is walking the walk. And you see people, like, I mean, in religious texts from time, right, you always hear about, more spiritually connected people are following that path, eat less and sleep less. And it's true. The the people, same thing, stories as you, and they're living by a certain way of life. You can't, you can't deny being interested or curious about it if you're if you're witnessing it, right? Firsthand. Yeah, hundred percent. Like a lot of people say to me, Well, well, I'm gonna try and do that, you know, and I'm gonna get up at 4 a.m. and I'm gonna do this and stuff. But I said, you gotta understand, I'm clean like throughout the day. Like I have a I have a training called brainwave synergy i know how to operate my brainwaves i don't have stress i don't have frustration i put clean stuff into me so i said if you're going to follow my routine you've got to follow it because you're probably going to want to go to sleep by three in the afternoon if you're putting a bunch of junk in you and you're stressed out all the time right so (laughs) you know so it's a great framework like i actually just total side note is i remember being at a poker game once and they're feeding a lot of heavy animal-based foods which is my cue to just get up and walk away usually <laughs> and when you're running a game that's money off the table for you so you're like oh what's wrong then i was like uh I, you know sometimes i engage sometimes i don't but yeah. it occurred to me after this happened a few times to tell them like you know what will keep everybody's gonna fall asleep if they eat all this heavy like get some fruit and you'll like your game will last a few hours longer and one of them listened to me and I saw right away, like it actually happened. Like people were less like, you know, dozy and they wouldn't eat as much. And then they're all like nibbling away at berries and fruit and staying awake, like probably two, three hours longer. So in practice, I just, I sometimes think about that. Like, how does this translate? Like I hear this all the time, especially from guys, they feel lighter. So many people have gone vegan when I've recommended uh, game changers to them. And then on the broader level, like still in the mainstream, like, I don't know if it's, it could just be, you know, journalism more is like always wanting to say something different or this study says this and this says this. So people keep reading and stay confused. But that that part for us to really advance to collectively, um, I think that part will need to be in the in the awareness more. And then that's actually a good like one point I wanted to make when I came on to talk to you today is I know a few people have said this when I was at the annual uh, vegan advocacy summit. Awareness can be overrated. So like people that are, when once some people have some awareness, uh, whether it's around health or environment, it's different for everybody. Trying to speak to that and raise it further um, doesn't, it's just diminishing returns. Like a key area of focus, I think, when we're talking about policy or individual, like, you know, you're just trying to change your friends and family is focusing on making it easier on implementation. So that action, making it like, so greener by default, right? Making the menu choices the same. Uh, easier rather than keeping them the same that is a i think an under focused area in the vegan movement um writ large and so yeah that's where the tides i think are like not to say we shouldn't be raising awareness uh there's many areas but most canadians i know you're like across the country 
are against factory farming like well, and yeah. you know widespread animal abuse and we have great organizations like animal justice pushing for that legislation but you don't need to you know sharing those videos and it does two things one is the opportunity cost is you're not telling people about how they can move their school or get their kid to have fewer allergies etc um yeah. healthier lifestyles right through the food and two you're also like possibly you're, you're exposing yourself to being muted a little bit right like I'm sure a lot of the guys who follow what you're saying are grateful, right? If, if they experience more energy, they're going to immediately, you have credit, you have cred now with them, right? Yeah. 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 hundred percent, you know, and the, and most of them, most of them do. They, I don't think there's anybody it, it, guys and girls that have started following and said to me, yeah, I a hundred percent have more energy. Now I feel better. Like I literally feel better. Right. And so I mean, it's, it's, it's just a no brainer. I mean, it's as simple as that, you know? And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on policy and everything like that. And where you've gone, I've loved this conversation. This has been a really good conversation. It's been a good, deep conversation. And, and I think there needs to be more conversations like this. So where can everybody um, find you at uh, your companies at uh, anything that you want to share? Yeah, great. Thanks, sir, about that. Um, and I agree. I, thanks for having me on for this conversation. I love the idea of um, action and change through through policy. Uh, so the Veg Food Bank, since we started there first, uh, you can find, <laughs> we are off Instagram at the moment. Uh, there's a glitch there, but Toronto Vegetarian Food Bank, it's uh, tvfb.ca. There's also um, VegTO, as I mentioned, the formerly Toronto Vegetarian Association's operating name at veg.ca. And they can find me, uh, plantbaseddata.org is um, the plant-based data's website. And uh, we have an account at plant-based data. If you want to look for me personally, it's at plant-based econ. And um, I also have some personal accounts, but but that's where I would um, direct people. Awesome. Well, everybody go uh, check them out. Uh, you're, just, you're doing so much great stuff. Uh, thank you for this great interview. And there's just uh, <clears throat> so much great information. And I know people are going to be really uh, inspired from it. Thanks a lot, Shane. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Take care, everybody. Till next time. Bye-bye now.